The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we're actually talking about technology today. <laughs> so I've been I'm coming down here for the last, uh, this is the fourth week, uh, and doing a series about dharma and magic. So first week we talked about dharma of Harry Potter, and then we talked about the dharma of resurrection, and last week we talked about dharma and time travel, and then this week uh, we're talking about dharma and the magic internet. So already the title probably, if there were uh, a bunch of kids here, they would be like, what do you mean magic internet? It's just, it's just a thing, you know, it's like the magic sink, the magic stove, like why is that magic? It just, you know, it's just a thing, it just works. But uh, there is something magic about the access that we have to information now and the connections that we can use uh, through technology and through the web. And uh, I think probably those of us who remember life prior to that maybe notice that more than, uh, for example, small kids who, are, who might have had access to that all of their life. Uh, but I can just think about a few things that even just today I used the uh, internet for. And all kinds of really useful things, right? So uh, I was able to uh, connect with people um, through a friend of ours in the hospital. And so there's a schedule for like who can visit him when and who will come and sit with him and things. And so that's really helpful, right? That we're able to do that. The schedule's in the cloud and you know, everyone can check in and sign up for different shifts and things like that. And... Uh, I'm starting to get um, back into swimming uh, as just fun and fitness and things like that. And I said I wanted to learn how to do the butterfly stroke now, uh, which I never learned how to do. I can do the other strokes fine. So then uh, there's actually videos where people are teaching how to do the butterfly stroke, which is kind of a complicated stroke. Like you have to get the timing, the kicks, and the arms. and you know, So they kind of break it down and give you different exercises you could try in the pool to learn it. So then uh, I use that to, to figure out what to do in my swimming workout. And then uh, it's actually my birthday this week, so I'm planning my karaoke birthday party, also using the internet. <laughs> so I'm inviting people to that and you know, all that stuff, right? Uh, and you know, so many different things, other, other things than that. And you can think about today for yourself, like what it was that you used the internet for, if you did, right? All the different things that you might have, or just even this week, even if you don't use it as much as um, uh, I have just described, right? So it's, it reminds me of the... the uh, Buddhist teaching, this is from the uh, the Mahayana Buddhist uh, school of the net of Indra. It's actually called the net of Indra. Right? And this is that the world, it's a, it's a metaphor for the structure of reality actually, is this uh, interconnected net. And at each cross point of the net, you know, nets are like little strings tied together. At each cross point, there's actually a jewel. And uh, it's a clear jewel, but it also reflects all of the jewels around it. So it's this like bejeweled net that's all uh, reflecting all the other uh, nodes. So this is actually kind of true, right? Like there's this way in which that reflects the interconnection of ourselves. And on the World Wide Web, on the virtual uh, internet, that's there also. So how does this play out? Like how are some things that are different? So, you know, again, because I I remember the time before this was as uh, prevalent, I can think about some ways in which this reflects uh, the way things are. And uh, one example is uh, karma. 
right? So we talked about karma the last time, teachings of karma. So that uh, the law of cause and effect. So that your actions that you take in the world uh, don't actually just disappear. You know, they actually plant seeds through the intentions that come uh, through your actions uh, for something in the future. And the actions that you take with intentions that are wholesome intentions, so uh, intentions like compassion, generosity, kindness, uh, those have the potential to flower, uh, to bloom into positive future for you, future uh, events. And then those things that plant seeds of unwholesome, unskillful, such as those actions done with intentions of revenge, uh, fear, hatred, and so on, uh, likewise have the possibility to grow and flower into uh, unwholesome uh, results for you. So recently I was um, looking up the name of someone who, uh, I don't know, but someone said I should uh, get in touch with them because we do similar work and things like that. And it's just amazing all the stuff that's there sometimes when you put someone's name in. So I found out not only so his resume, then also found out um, uh, so that's the basic stuff where he works. Then there's like house information, so where his house is and how much it costs. Right? Uh, you know, all the property records are on, online now. Then there were records of um, where he donated, like all the donations he made, both to political campaigns and something else. And then uh, another donation website in which he's supporting some uh, kids going to school or something like that. Then uh, you know blogs in which he has made comments and all this stuff, right? So it's all there, like in the internet, it doesn't disappear. <laughs> and uh, people are discovering that now, like uh, in uh, ways that are sometimes positive and sometimes negative. But I think actually it's helpful. It makes us actually reflect more. It makes us realize this more. Or there's stories of people who have uh, you know, applied for jobs and then nowadays people will look on Facebook or you know, check out social networking sites to see like, what the person has put up, like what kind of person is this, right? Um, and sometimes discover things that will uh, make them seem like less savory candidates. Right? It also kind of holds people to a higher bar of um, ethics too. This way actions don't disappear. So. You know, there have been a, a lot, I think, of um, scandals with politicians around sex that have come, out, come about, right? And this is like not a new thing, right? So this is like old story of humanity, right? Uh, but I think the, the way that, that things work on the internet, the magic of the internet is that your actions don't disappear, which um, you know, some people do not anticipate when they take certain actions. So you send... Uh, you know, pictures of your crotch to teenagers in different places and, uh, you know, while your pregnant wife is traveling and, you know, et cetera, that comes back to haunt you and there's evidence that you actually did this and you soon look for another job and leave office, right? <laughs> or you post, uh, you know, photographs on Craigslist, trolling for uh, hookups. Meanwhile, you're uh, in Congress talking about family values, et cetera, et cetera, and likewise get busted and then sayonara to you, right? So, so actions have results, and this is all like coming down the pike in a big way. It's not like any of this stuff didn't happen before, too, but I think people are getting caught more, or it's you know, coming back more. Uh, and this is true for all of us, so not to be self-righteous about this, but I think you know, it makes me also realize and pay attention to the actions and um, speech also that I take part in on the internet in a way that I think can actually be kind of helpful. It's helpful to pay attention, right? So also the, the magic of the internet is that there's information at your fingertips 
there's information that's so accessible all the time. And this can both be incredibly helpful uh, if you would like to go and visit your friend in the hospital or learn the butterfly stroke or any number of other things. Um, but also, there's a way in which, particularly if you are the kind of person who has a certain um, craving for information, right, uh, in which it actually doesn't take that much to, to uh, satiate that craving. Like, it just takes a small movement of the body, right, to actually engage with that craving and to uh, follow, follow along with that, right? So it doesn't seem like it's that not much. It's not like, oh, I would really like a cup of tea. All right, I need to get up and go over there and heat up the water and pour, you know, like there's a lot of steps in that. Or, you know, I would really like to um, go out and um, make a chocolate cake so to go get the ingredients, you know. That the stuff in the, in the material world takes a lot more. But uh, craving arises in our mind for anything, right? So craving can arise in your mind for sensual pleasure, uh, for food, for sex, for uh, objects, for experiences. And one of these experiences is actually an experience of uh, wanting information. So if any of you have ever spent more time than you had planned or would have expected online doing something or other, uh, including things that you know, are like, Later, you're like, why did I spend three hours looking that up, right? Or why did I spend, you know, just, just sur- surfing, right? Surfing the web, surfing the web, right? And it's not necessarily something inherently unethical about surfing the web, but it's good to pay attention to what is the, the dynamic that's going on in that experience, right? Particularly if you feel like, oh, I'm spending too much time or it's not useful um, things that I'm looking up or something like that. And in that, you see, connected to this dharma of the magic internet is... Uh, actually important lessons about the Four Noble Truths. So teachings of the Buddha around uh, dukkha, so unsatisfactoriness of life, including the unsatisfactoriness of spending like three hours looking at uh, videos of kittens playing the piano or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of that. Uh, a certain uh, dukkha, like a certain suffering also, a certain longing, a certain uh, emptiness. Right? Not in a good way emptiness, but a uh, bad way emptiness. Uh, and the source of that is actually craving, is this sense of needing something, this, this thirst, this hunger. Right? So usually there is an object that arises and we think like, oh, I want that thing. I would like that. I would like that experience. I would like that thing. Right? And oftentimes it's not even articulated as clearly as that, like I want that thing, in which case it's easier to see that as craving. Uh, but sometimes it's just this energetic movement towards something and we get caught in that movement. So we identify with both the arising of this energy, that there's a me that's having this energy. We also get completely bought into the illusory uh, external world, that there is an object here. And then that actually acquiring this object will then actually alleviate uh, our suffering. So the illusory part of it is in all of what I described, but also, and here's the key thing, is that it's the, the presence of the craving itself that is actually causing the sense of dissatisfaction. You know, that leaning of mind, that wanting something that's not here, it's just the wanting itself, which is actually the dukkha, the suffering, the uh, dis-ease. The, the dis-ease is not the absence of the chocolate cake or other uh, video or uh, car or whatnot. It's actually the craving itself, the longing, this thing itself, right? So it's helpful to notice that because then you can see that oh, 
the craving is telling me I need to get this for peace, for happiness, but actually it is the existence of the craving itself that is the, the block to that happiness, peace, etc. So sometimes it can be a, the craving will go away if I get this thing, but then also notice when the craving re-arises again with something else. So it's like, sort of like insert photo here of thing that I want. So now with the uh, internet, it's about information, right? Craving for information. And certain people have this worse than others. And I think there is a certain sort of age thing too. It's like I notice that older people, and, and this may not be a true generalization, but I feel like have a different relationship to technology uh, in some ways. And so uh, perhaps engage with it, with it uh, maybe more gingerly or some, somehow are like less uh, sucked in, right? But there's a way in which the craving for information can come up so fast, like, oh, I want to know this, right? I want to know that, I want to know this, I want to know that, right? And it's not a bad thing, but then just notice, like, okay, you could get that so fast. You could get it, you can get it, you can get it, you can get it. And, you know, like I mentioned, it's, it's good that we can get information, right? But also, it can be a waste of time that we can get information. And then sometimes it can actually be a problem that we can get information. So meditation is actually the practice of paying attention to your own mind, like we sit in a certain posture and we breathe and all this stuff, but it really is learning to understand the mind and the heart and how that relates to the world and what is it that causes suffering and what is it that causes freedom from suffering. So in your relationship to the magic internet is a great place to look at that, to observe craving and just to pay attention to, like what is my relationship to this activity? What is my relationship to this experience? Right. On a, on a different level, for, so I was talking about this, this craving, this tanha, it's called in uh, Pali, for something, for information, or for an experience, or something like that. And it could be also with, with the, the web, you can get different experiences. You could get a sound experience, you could get a visual experience, right? Uh, the Buddha actually talked about several different kinds of craving tanha. So one is this basic one for some sensory experience. Then there also is this somewhat more subtle one, which is of a craving for becoming. So this desire for existence, the arising of existence. So um, we move around in the world, and our experience is of these different sense experiences happening that arise and pass away. And then aggregate together, it feels like there is some sense of a solid ego self me that's moving around in life and doing things. But actually this is kind of a construct. It's actually somewhat of an illusion, you could say. But we often have this, this craving for that, for that becoming. Like there's this sense of security in this illusion of a me that arises and that goes about in the world and does things and that then we have to protect and we have to uh, machinate around a lot. So it also can be interesting to see how this plays out on the uh, magic internet. So this craving for becoming also. So you can see this even with, uh, for example, like if you have email or uh, text, uh, text messages or whatnot. And uh, now you may not, not have this uh, problem, but I think many, many people do. So if you ever find yourself looking at your email and then there's nothing new there, right? You look at your text and there's like nothing new, right? Or if you have Facebook or something like, oh, no one wrote me a message, right? So I feel like there's something in that seeking this, like, oh, someone is connecting with me, someone is 
conversing with me. There's some like craving for existence because each time that you get some message from someone, it's like you're born in that moment in this relationship with this email or you know, imaginary with this person. It's like, oh, here I am again, right? And in the silence, in the quiet, in the lack of that, sometimes there's this uh, sense of, of absence or of non-existence that I think makes us very nervous. So you can notice this even in your own mind if you're sitting in meditation sometimes and sometimes people will complain like, oh, there's so many thoughts, it's so annoying. But then sometimes if it actually gets really quiet, it makes you kind of nervous, you know. Like actually if the thoughts stop, it's like, oh no. And, and then the mind will start churning something up. It's like a problem machine, right? It will start like kicking up, creating some new thing to think about, worry about, something like that, right? Uh, which basically then creates, again, a sense of a self, a sense of a problem, a sense of a this, a sense of a that, right? So this, this uh, craving for becoming. And then the third one I'll just mention because, um, just to round it out, so there's the, the craving for sense, sense experiences, sense pleasures, there's a craving for becoming, and then there also is actually a craving for uh, non-becoming, for uh, sort of annihilation sometimes, for non-existence also. So we can bring our presence, practice of mindfulness to anything, and it's helpful to bring it to something like the magic internet. Because it is just a tool, you know, like I was saying in the beginning, as uh, you know, small children will, will uh, relate to it. And so it can be something that can be helpful, and it can be something that it's un- can be unhelpful. Right? So it's good to pay attention to what's our relationship to that, how are we using this. So for example, in the dynamic of actually continuing to search for different things. So something arises in your mind, you want to know something and you search for it. Something arises, you want to know, you search for it. Like that, that, that. Like It's basically sort of like feeding the random impulses of your mind like that. It's good to notice uh, both the, that you're feeding craving itself. You're actually reinforcing that dynamic of craving in yourself. But also, there's a way in which you're reinforcing distraction. Like you could be reinforcing a sense of more uh, sort of scatteredness rather than collection or centeredness or concentration. And you can see if this is true or not in your own experience. Like all these things I suggest, you have to pay attention and see if this is true in your own experience. So part of it is just being able to pay attention to your mind, being mindful enough to know when something like this arises, like a desire for some information or some, some sight, some sound. And then actually having mindfulness allows you to make a choice about that. So rather than the reactiveness of the regular mind, the reactiveness that just goes with the craving or goes for every single thing that occurs, right? Mindfulness allows us to have the space to be like, okay, yeah, I'll do that one. I won't do that one. Uh, It provides also support for a certain amount of discipline, right? Mental discipline of choosing, like what is skillful, what is unskillful? What is helpful for me? What is less helpful for me, right? Like what's the best way to use this tool? What's a, a less helpful way to use this tool? So among the guidelines, too, that I think are helpful um, of the teachings of the Buddha on this are about um, the guidelines around speech, too. Because not only are we taking things in, but usually we're sort of putting things out, we're communicating. And the Buddha's uh, teachings around uh, ethics, or sila, conduct, uh, is basically around conduct that will lead to harmonious life for ourselves and others. And this is true in the realm of speech as well. So it is also about conduct that is 
uh, in keeping with someone who might be uh, seeking the truth, so seeking peace, seeking liberation. So guidelines around paying attention to speech include, uh, of course, avoiding false goods, so avoiding speaking what's false. That one is, seems more clear, like, okay, if you're trying to be in line with the truth, then avoid being false. Uh, and you know, on the, the internet, it's actually uh, easier, I think, to uh, get engaged in or pass off some uh, false identity or uh, lies or something that's different. There's like sort of like a little bit easier than if you're face to face with someone. So it's good to pay attention to that dimension of that, right? And then likewise, you also don't always know when you see something on the web, like, is this true or not? Like there's a lot of information out there. There are a lot of things people say. You know. Then also a recommendation is uh, to avoid uh, abusive or harsh speech. So a speech that is harmful. So like uh, you know, speaking with uh, the intent to hurt someone. So you see this, like, much, it's much easier on the, the web also, like on blogs or something, to just people start, like, flaming each other about something, you know, like tiny little thing, and then just, like, goes up. And, and then sometimes people are trying to be very clever about how they insult each other, right? But they're still, like, insulting each other, like, getting into these big battles of this, right? Uh, so again, I think it's, like, things that people wouldn't necessarily say. There's some, like, uh, way in which we might have some, somewhat more of a filter to actually see another human being in front of us to say something, right? People will just, like, kind of spout off, right? But as mentioned in the earlier uh, part about karma, these things also do not disappear. So, you know, and are traceable <laughs> oftentimes too. Then to avoid uh, speech which is divisive, so which causes uh, disharmony. Uh, and that's particularly stuff like gossip, slander, things like that. Right? So there's plenty of that that you could find on the web if you want to, but it's also good to pay attention to Okay, what's the way in which I engage with that or participate in that or don't participate in that? And then the fourth dimension of speech, which I think is related to um, uh, the whole surfing thing, is about uh, avoid uh, idle chatter. So when, when people usually hear this guideline around speech for uh, lay people, it's like, well, what does that mean, idle chatter? Right? Like, who's to say what that is? Uh, so like many of these teachings, the, it's not like a list for lay people of things that uh, equal idle chatter, though there is a list for uh, monastics of what is idle chatter. And for monastics, there's a very high bar of what they should be talking about. So they actually, Buddha lists things that they should not be uh, chit-chatting about, and it includes like the weather, uh, royalty, wars, politics, uh, astrology, games, sports. It basically includes everything except the Dharma, right? <laughs> so that's for the monastics, that's their high bar, right? Now, as lay people, like, you do have to engage in your profession and also in uh, acts of sociability and, you know, things like that. So uh, I think it's not as uh, stringent in that way, but it's good to pay attention, both in speech, like how much of what I'm saying or speaking is actually necessary, useful, helpful? And how much is it that I'm just like filling up space, filling up air? And then likewise also with uh, the web. So both what you're writing and also then what you're consuming too.
So the other dimension of the precepts, I think, that comes into play with this is the precept around uh, the fifth one, which is around avoiding use of intoxicants that cloud the mind. And uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, this Vietnamese teacher, has a very nice um, rearticulation of some of the precepts. And in this one, he talks about uh, not just intoxicants like drugs or alcohol, but also paying attention to full-on the diet that we take in. Uh, and he talks about you know a diet for a better planet, for ourselves, for our, on behalf of our ancestors, and for the future generations, and to pay attention just to everything we take in, not just uh, consuming nutritionally, but also like the TV that you watch, the images you put in your mind, uh, the things that you read, the music that you listen to, the language that you hear, and then also of course like what things that you take in uh, through the web. So that's another way in which we feed ourselves, we feed our mind, right, through our eyes, through our ears. Right. And for those of you who have sat uh, for any length of time, you could probably relate to this, that sometimes if you sit in a retreat, um, all this stuff gets kicked up that you didn't even know, you know, it's back to karma, that things don't disappear, it's like scary movies you've seen, or random images, or, you know, uh, TV shows or different things, you know. Like, it's not like it just disappears. Like, you're feeding your mind. Your mind latches onto some of that, and then it gets kicked back up again, and that's part of your store, the storehouse there. So, uh, so it's good to pay attention to what you're taking in in that way. And it also, as I said, you know, it can be, uh, it's an amazing thing, and can be used for so many positive, different uh, aspects, including information getting out there, including actually in feeding the truth, so bringing out the truth. So another way in which I uh, was able to access the uh, information on the internet recently was um, there's these big protests going on now around the country around, um, like it's called like Occupy Wall Street, right? Uh, but actually, it's, to me, it seems like a symbolic uh, statement about the radical inequality that there is in the country right now. Because, of course, if you're in downtown San Francisco, you're not occupying Wall Street because Wall Street is in New York, it's, you know, so not to take it literally. But I actually think this is an important thing for us to pay attention to. So I think there is a lot of suffering in the world because of the vast inequality of um, wealth and of uh, ability of people to take care of themselves and so on. And it's just gotten uh, worse and worse as now at a like, like ridiculously obscene level, which it's helpful for us to pay attention to. So those who care about the welfare of uh, fellow beings in the U.S. and in the world. So this movement is kind of spreading, right, through the uh, internet. Uh, and as are many different movements. So the movements for liberation in the Middle East and many countries there spread through uh, use of uh, internet, right? Uh, and it's good. It's, it's inspiring. People both get information about things and they're able to access things. And then, uh, you know, it helps to create a better world as well. So there's a great potential for that. So the net of Indra, intimately connected with all beings and with all things and all information. So now we are not just connected as we actually are uh, energetically, but also in this information web. And it's good for us to be aware of that. So you could think about yourself when you're accessing the internet as being one of these reflective jewels. You know, you are also one of these nodes here, right? And you're reflecting, you're getting the reflections of everything everyone has put out there that you're accessing. And then also you're reflecting back. So what am I putting out? Like what am I reflecting back? That then others will receive and will be reflected uh, in myriad different ways.
So I've said a lot of different things about this, uh, the web and our relationship to it and the Dharma, but I think I'll stop here and see if people have any thoughts they want to share or questions, comments um, uh, related to this. What's your own experience with this? Any areas of challenge that you find yourself with the magic internet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, addicted. Yeah. It sounds like tanha, craving. Oh, yeah. it's craving all the way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's because um, I'm, I'm, I'm on a computer all day as it yeah. is, and, and then now that my kids are grown up and gone, when uh, I come home at night, uh, there's nothing to do. Mm. And I hate television because I think most of the stuff on it is garbage. And so I get on the Internet. And I can stay on that Internet, and it can be four or five hours will fly by. Mm-hmm. And I'll get on subjects and just read, and then, yeah, it is. It's connected. One subject's connected to the next subject. Right. And it's really difficult to just say, oh, I'm done reading this stuff. But right. then it gets interesting again, and <laughs> and uh, it's it's really a waste of time. I mean, you know, you're not going <laughs> to. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a problem with it. <laughs> <laughs> the first step so. is admitting it. It's good, yes. Yeah, I, I admit it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, it's, it's good to, like, take this up then as a practice. Because, I mean, I appreciate you willing to talk about it because I think mm-hmm. you are not the only one here. Mm-hmm. No? You're definitely not the only one in the world, right? There you guys talk. So, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, I mean, it's like anything that seems like, oh, this is this area, struggle, challenge, like, if you get interested in it also as an area of practice, so as someone who is a meditator or a dharma practitioner or whatever, you know, it's about understanding the mind. So it's actually really interesting. Like, what is the relationship of my mind to this whole mm-hmm. field, you know? Like, what's my relationship to it in this way? And mm-hmm. what are ways in which it's playing out in ways that are helpful? And what are ways in which it's playing out in ways that are unhelpful? And, and actually, like, as much as possible, you could start to get interested. You know, interest is the key in this, too. Get interested in paying attention to the movement of mind as you get sucked into something mm-hmm. or as you don't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, of course, the meditation teacher, like I'm going to say, like, oh, there's never nothing to do at home. You can always sit. You can meditate, right? <laughs> Spend three hours. You'll be in jhanas like point. that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's always possible, right? So, it is you know, possible. Um, and, you know, it's not to say also that everything that you're accessing is necessarily like a waste or something like that too, right? But it's only like how much do you... How much do you guide yourself? So it's, it's, I think, I feel like as a society also, we're just learning about this too, you know, as a society. So it's kind of like, um, you know, if you have, you, have, you have kids, it sounds like, so, you know, kids are little, like they'll just eat whatever they want. If you leave it up to them, they eat candy for breakfast and lunch and dinner. Most kids, some kids are unusual, right? But they don't have a sense of nutrition or, you know, how to be disciplined or something, right? Like if you leave them a bag of Halloween candy, they just eat the whole thing, or, you know. Mm-hmm. But then as a, a grown-up, like, you have to kind of guide them. Be like, okay, you can have one piece today. Or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Today for breakfast, we're having cereal and not mm-hmm. Snickers. And, you know. mm-hmm. So you have to kind of guide them, right? So it's like this with your own mind, too. Like, we have to learn how to be our own uh, guidance in this mm-hmm. way. Right? And unfortunately, you know, the, good, the Buddha gave us a lot of like, helpful tips and mm-hmm. about that. But it really is about training our own mind. So mm-hmm. that's true in general. And then I think... You know, with this easy access that we have, like like you're saying, like you can just go like that four mm-hmm. or five hours, you know, mm-hmm. um, is even more a uh, call to actually paying attention to the mind and paying attention to a discipline, mm-hmm. right, with that, uh, mm-hmm. and, and becoming mindful of it. And it could be just a really interesting project in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, so try it. You know. I will. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Next. Thanks. <laughs> I, I think maybe I'm coming from the opposite place. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm thinking perhaps I'm coming from the opposite place where I don't really enjoy it. I sort of have to force myself to do uh-huh. emails and go online. And, right. Um, and I can sort of see the value a lot of times once I get there. Yeah. But it also feels like a drain, uh-huh. potentially. So I guess it leaves me thinking about balance, you know, yeah. listening to these different points of view. But I sometimes get feedback, why don't you get more engaged? Why don't you, you know, participate more? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're in tune with uh, the the dimension of it feeling dra- being draining and, yeah. like, not energizing, which is, it's good to be in touch with that, right? Because I think, like, with any addiction or craving kind of thing, what happens is that we aren't paying attention to other cues. And with the something like the web also, it's kind of like a direct thought-to-thought kind of uh, thing, right? There's like a little bit of movement of the fingers, right? <laughs> but you're not fully engaged in your body or in your emotions. So I think that's the other thing is it's really easy to get disconnected from the physical body, from mindfulness of the body, from mindfulness of the emotions, the heart and stuff, and, you know. Uh, so in some ways it's a blessing that you're not, you know, like it sounds like you're not going to go down the addiction road with this particular thing, right? Because you're, yeah, it's, so it's good. I mean, it's, it seems like actually, it's interesting because it seems like it's, like it's just a tool and you use it for what you need to use it for and then you can put it down. So, yeah, it seems good. (laughs) But I was thinking about your, um, Maybe the metaphor, the teaching, the net of, did you say Indra? Indra, yeah. The idea that maybe these are lights or jewels or, you know, something where useful transmissions come through. So I guess I was thinking about both perspectives. Mm. Yeah, it can be. But to the, the net of Indra, actually, he wasn't talking about the internet at that point. Yes, I, <laughs> I was just bringing that metaphor, in. Metaphor. So it actually is about, yeah, it's actually about reality. I mean, the truth is that, like, that that of taking, taking in everything and being, realizing your place in this full sense of interconnection is actually possible without the web, right? So it actually is true right now, you know? Like even all of us being in this room, like just even for this evening, like we're all sharing the same air. So physically speaking, like we're uh, engaging and breathing in and out the same air, like we're sort of swimming in the same air here, you know, now, right? And... Uh, the energy that we put out is also part of this sort of field right now, right? Physical energy and heat energy and, you know, all of that stuff, right? And then the ways that we interact with each other here also influence each other. So in some ways we're separate, but in other ways we're dimensional. You know, like there's all these different ways in which we're, even, even if you think about through time, so this is, this is what I'm talking about in space right now, but sort of like you're a node in the tree of your family and of your community, you know, like you're sort of the genetic product of all these different generations and then you know on forth and then also you're connected to your community and to your uh, people in your workplace and you know there are all these different ways in which we're we connect and we interact and we affect each other all the time um and uh the, the there's like this uh, you know game the six degrees of kevin bacon it's like you know that you could find any any actor can be connected to kevin bacon through six different you know Maximum six movies or something, you know. But it's actually true of all of us in some ways, too. So this is, this is like a, some pop culture version of the net of Indra, right? It's the 
six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but you know, it's true for all of us. Like we're all interconnected in some way, uh, like not through the movies we were in, but actually through uh, many, many different aspects, including our physical bodies and uh, you know, sharing the space and uh, ideas and you know, all these different ways. And the more and more that we realize that, the more that we're able to naturally act in harmony, like naturally act in ways that are in harmony and uh, in line with uh, what is good for ourselves and good for others. So a lot of the times that we do things that are like out of line is when we're not feeling that we're part of this net. You know, we're not feeling like we're interconnected in this way. It's just like me and this other thing or me and the people I have to fight to get to my thing or, you know, uh, yeah. Even if you're sitting in traffic, you know, as I was today, coming down here from San Francisco, right? You know, there's different perspective you can have on traffic, right? Uh, it's like, oh, there's me and there's all these cars that are thwarting me from getting to my destination, or, you know, slowing me down, or, you know. Or, you know, it's like, oh, actually, I am the traffic. <laughs> so it's not like everyone else is the traffic and I am not, right? <laughs> like, I am also the traffic, right? Like, they're thinking that about me too, you know. We're all on this sort of river of vehicles that move at different speeds in different places for different reasons, and... The interconnection is great there. You know, like something happens like way, way down the line. Uh, you know, someone turns their head to look at a sign and slows down and then the brake light, brake light, brake, 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 you know, like it ripples all the way up 101 to, you know, the mission where I get in my car and it's like, why is it so slow? Someone looked at a pigeon on, you know, <laughs> in Mountain View and it's like, you know, right. So anyway, yeah. So it's like, oh, I can feel like, oh, I'm a part of this and this is what's happening right now. I can be like, oh. There's me and there's everyone else to fight, and, you know. So. Yeah, please. Um, so I was talking with someone today about different religious leaders, and we were talking about, um, I, I believe it was an early follower of the Buddha who w had been a serial killer. Yes. I, I don't remember his name. Angulimala. Then, yes. yes. And then became enlightened, and uh, I guess people did not treat him well uh, at first, and was told that he needed to suffer it, uh, you know, and let the, the karmic, yes, whatever, pass or act out, out, out or whatever. So I, I think it's a, an interesting concept that perhaps my blog posts will be out forever, um, interacting with people long after I'm dead. Yes and perhaps having some sort of, I don't know, karmic interaction forever. So. It's true, yeah. For better <laughs> or for worse, it is. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I'm not sure if I thank you for that thought in my head or not, but it's definitely <laughs> an interesting perspective. Yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, you think about even like the profiles people put up or, you know, on Facebook people are like, you know, taking pictures of every meal they've eaten and whatever, you know, stuff like that. Or, you know, just commenting on their life like that. And it's like, it's like what happens when those people die? Like, I don't think it's come to that where people have figured out, like, how you know, there's going to be, like, this sort of graveyard of Facebook profiles listing every meal people have had or, you know, everything they've done or, whatever, you know, it's just there. But it's true. That Angulimala is a great story. So for those of you who don't know it, I'll just recap briefly the Angulimala story. So... Uh, I'll try and tell it short because I love this story, so I'll expand <laughs> the danger of expanding it out. So Angulimal was actually a serial killer, but the, so the story, the pre-story on him was that he was actually a very devoted student um, of a, a guru and then um, of a spiritual teacher. 
And at some point, some of the other students got jealous of him because he was a really great student and the teacher loved him and he was going to be the, the head disciple, etc. So then they sort of planted seeds of jealousy in the teacher's head that this disciple was having an affair with his wife, blah, blah, blah. Right? So then the teacher sort of turned on Angulimala and um, told him, like, okay, as your, your act of devotion to me, you have to go and kill a thousand people, right? Uh, and bring me the fingers to prove it. Bring me a finger from all of them, right? So now if anyone's spiritual teacher ever tells you that, think twice about that. <laughs> Tradition, spiritual teacher, right? But somehow Angulimala, you know, in this story at least, presses on, so devoted is he. So he goes out and he starts to uh, kill people, basically, and turns out he's good at that too, so he's gotten up to like 999 people. And then according to the story, there's many different dimensions of karma in the story. According to the story, his mother wants to go out and stop him and is going to this forest where he's been like hanging out there and being a bandit and wailing people and killing them. Uh, and then the Buddha sees with his like, you know, divine eye that Angulimala is going to kill his mother, which is like very, 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 very unwholesome karma to kill your mother. Right? So, so Buddha decides to intervene. So he goes over to the forest and uh, Angulimala sees him and is like, okay, I'll kill that guy. Right? So then he's wearing his robes and stuff, but he's walking in his sort of slow walking kind of way. But somehow Angulimala like, can't get up to him to kill him. Like, you know, the Buddha's using his, uh, his special powers and he's, he seems to be walking slowly, but Angulimala like, can't catch him. And so he says, stop, monk, stop. And uh, the Buddha turns around and you know, looks at him and says, I have stopped, why don't you? Right. <laughs> right. So, so Angulimala suddenly, you know, he gets the zap of uh, <laughs> wholesome ethicalness and he just remembers somehow that, oh my gosh, what am I been doing? So immediately he decides he's going to give this up and he can see there's something about this person, he's going to become a follower. So then he gets uh, taken to the, with the Buddha and they, uh, he ordains as a monk and then he practices. Apparently he had a little running start from his other spiritual practice and then he becomes enlightened. So he sees into the nature of things, his mind is free, he is thus in line now uh, with uh, the way things are, which includes then from this moment on, full uh, ethical conduct, actually. But his past ethical conduct was not so good, killing 999 people, right? So that both is in this mysterious karmic way, like, oh, bad things will happen to you, but it also is that people see him and are like, you killed my uncle, you know, throw things at him like they don't like him, right? Or they're scared of him. And um, there weren't, like, uh, such prevalence of handguns like there are now, but people would throw, like, pottery at him and stuff, right? So... He goes out for his alms round as a monk, now ordained, now enlightened, uh, for food. And people will throw all this stuff at him. So he comes back all like battered and bruised and, you know, blood and pottery stuff. And uh, so he goes to the Buddha to talk to him about it. And the Buddha says to him, like, you know, bear it, Brahmin, bear it. You know, basically like, this is the result of uh, your past actions. And, uh, you know, because he's actually free, then it's the physical mark of it, but he actually is able to be free of the uh, psychological mark of it. But also, that, that doesn't mean that it just disappears for him, right? It's not going to be completely gone, right? So yes, your blog post will continue on. And, uh, <laughs> so it's helpful, I mean, it really is helpful to pay attention to what's out there, because, uh, you know, if you do search certain, certain people, like, you can find their blog posts from all different times, right? Or, uh, you know, I have a blog now, and I, I actually pay attention to what I put out there in this way. And... Uh, on my, my Dharma webpage, as was mentioned, anushkaf.org, right? I have a little blog, which, you know, and maybe it's not as interesting because I'm more careful about it or something, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and then also I have a Facebook page as a meditation teacher, too, 
and I post different things and uh, you know people have different opinions about what I post and they like them or they don't like them and I think I posted something about um, you know the Buddhist teaching is about rebirth and I, I believe this to be uh, actually true right uh, so there's some um, interesting story about a little boy in um, Ohio who had remembered his past lives and uh, he had these, these memories of you know and, and basically it was like that he was like a World War II fighter pilot or something, right? And so then his parents, who did not actually believe in rebirth at all, but they loved their little son. You know, he was drawing all these pictures of planes blowing up and stuff, and, you know, they kind of figured out what this was about. They took him to this site where actually this plane went down, and uh, he knew all this stuff about it, and, you know, then it actually brought him a lot of peace. It sort of helped resolve something for him. Anyway, so there was actually a video piece on it from, like, Fox News in Ohio or something. So I, I posted a link to my, and my uh, the, I think my Facebook uh, Dharma page or something like that. And, um, and some people didn't like it. Like, you know, it's uh, scary to some people to consider this. And maybe even as I'm saying this, it's a little frightening to you to consider that. But, um, you know, there it is. So you put things out there too. And it doesn't mean everyone has to like everything you put out there, but you put out what you think is true or, you know, put out what is your opinion and, you know, then there it goes. But... The thing with the karma is it's paying attention to the intention. You know, so my intention in putting that out there wasn't like, oh, let me freak out people you know, by posting this thing. It was like, oh, this is a, I think it's actually an interesting uh, account of, that might help people open their mind to just the possibility that this might be true. So even opening your mind to the possibility, I think, changes the way that we might relate. Right? Uh, because if you think about this idea of the, the, this karma actions of results, you actually don't see it in one lifetime. So, I mean, there's plenty of people who seem to be doing, like, terrible things and seem to be, like, incredibly prosperous, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't seem for me to hold water if you just think it's one lifetime, right? And there also are people who are incredibly good and uh, doing incredibly generous things and who are suffering a lot, either physical suffering or, uh, you know, they're very poor or, you know, it doesn't all line up immediately in one life, you know, so... So speaking of that, now that we're coming to the end, I'll actually give some, uh, some also reflections about the topic of dana, generosity, that you have mentioned too. So in this tradition then, it is the, that those of us who give the teachings of the Buddha, particularly in this sort of Vipassana Theravadan school, not true in all schools, uh, do this uh, with as much sincerity as we can. We do the best job that we can. Uh, and then the uh, offering is made without expecting something in return, Right, so specific thing, as in, you must pay five dollars to come and hear this talk, and if you don't have five dollars, you cannot hear it, or you must pay twenty dollars, or fifty dollars, or if you want a front row seat, it's a hundred dollars, but if you want to sit in the back, then you know. So the the idea is to make the teachings as accessible as possible, but also in order for this to work, there has to be some um, reciprocity in the system, right? So it both is a, a you know, there's there's sort of different ways to put it. There's sort of like a invitation to offer. But also, I mean, frankly, the system is not going to work and these teachings will not continue if people don't offer in some way. And everyone has to figure out for themselves what it is uh, that's appropriate to give. Right? But I would just ask for everyone to actually sincerely engage with the practice of, uh, of dana, of offering for myself as a teacher and for the center, and also every time that you go to a dharma uh, teaching. Because, uh, you know, as the teachers, like, we've done our best in uh, try to engage with the practice of the teaching. Uh, and that's sort of coming on down the line as it does. So then you're all part of the, this experiment now, you know, in the West, where it's unusual 
to try to run centers like this. And, you know, this center is a good example of one that actually seems to be able to be uh, making it like that, right? Um, but it's not clear, like, how this is going to play out in 21st century America where people are used to a market economy, you know, and where if something is offered without uh, a specific price being put on it, it's considered um, free and thus actually sort of like in the bargain bin or, you know, the leftovers or something like that, right? So, you know, actually with the, the teachings, one of the reasons that they're not sort of priced is the idea is like, you know, this is actually priceless. This teachings of liberation for your heart and mind. It's incredibly subtle stuff. It's not things that, that uh, can be taught everywhere. And also everyone doesn't know it. <laughs> you know, there's not so many people who can teach such things. Right? So just to encourage you, please, to um, engage sincerely with the practice of uh, making an offering this time and every time that you do that. And, uh, and then also in the gradient of sort of community offering, there's a sense that like people have different means. So if you're someone who actually is uh, doing well right now, then try and offer more, like sort of on behalf of the, those in the community who might not be, right? Uh, and if you're not doing so well, then offer what you can. But also, you know, you don't need to feel bad about that, so you do your best with that too. So as long as you're sincerely engaging with that practice, then... Uh, it's a good thing and the cycle continues. And uh, it's also part of the uh, practice and the teachings around generosity and around karma. So the Buddha really taught a lot about uh, each time you have an opportunity to be generous, take that opportunity. uh, Take the opportunity as much as you can. It's beneficial for others and also beneficial for yourself. And also recognition about how all of us are part of this uh, Indra's web as well. So on that note, let's just sit for a moment. We'll share the blessings from our merit, from our practice here. So appreciating our opportunity to come together in this Dharma Center and learn from, reflect on these teachings. 2,600 years old. That's still relevant to us today. Appreciating yourself for your own good intentions and coming here and your desire to cultivate your mind, heart, to be happy, to have freedom. So we share the blessings and the merit from our practice tonight with everyone here and with all beings all over Indra's web and the World Wide Web. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. So thank you for your attention. Uh, I think this is my last time in this series, but uh, you're welcome to come any other teachings that I'm doing? I'm teaching some retreats. Um, one at Spirit Rock over Thanksgiving, if anyone wants to go on a Thanksgiving retreat. And um, one in January that's focused on uh, leadership, qualities of leadership. But anyone can come, whether you're a leader in your work or life or home or community. Um, and then, uh, yeah, many other places that I'm teaching you could find on my website too. So um, I hope to see you again. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>